Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the pages of each new issue. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, could Trump win again? We also take a look at the coming Tory row and at the very end, how commuting has got so much better in lockdown. First up. Joe Biden is still leading in the polls, but could Trump still turn it around? That's what Freddie Gray and Douglas Murray say in this week's issue. Freddie joins me now, together with Kate Andrews, our economics correspondent. So Freddie, can you tell us about how you see Trump's campaign turning around? Well, I think certainly the Trump campaign has found a bit of momentum in recent weeks. I think the polls bear me out on that. And I think Trump himself, having had a very sort of sloppy first half of the year, particularly with COVID-19 and his handling of the pandemic, has really started to campaign very well. And that's because we're in the, we're getting into the real rhythm of of the election now. And Trump is, uh, for all his flaws, a brilliant campaigner. He loves it. People often criticise Trump for not being really interested in governing and just being interested in campaigning. Uh, But he is actually very good at campaigning and um, people tend to forget that uh, because they're so busy loathing him. Kate, um, the two main parties have just had their national conventions. How do you think both sides did? Well, the Democrats had the speakers. Not only did they have their big hitters, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, the major players in the Democratic Party right now, but they also had a lot of prominent Republicans. They had former Governor John Kasich, who ran for president in 2016. They had Colin Powell, uh, part of the George W. Bush administration, very famous Republican. They had uh, former presidential candidate John McCain's widow there. So the Democrats were really bringing the Republicans to them to, to make the plea on their behalf to move away from the party, perhaps as a on a one-off occasion, to vote for Joe Biden. But the DNC was really quite negative. It was about Trump. It was about how much they didn't like Trump. I think if you came away from the DNC and you didn't like Trump, you would have had that validated. But it wasn't so clear what they stood for. And especially with these protests across America with cars and businesses on fire, I think a lot of people will think that there wasn't enough lip service paid uh, to what's really happening in America right now. On the flip side, the Republicans had the Trump children as speakers, which makes a lot of people cringe, I think, on the left and the right, especially if that is your main headline. Uh, but it was quite sleek. It was it was felt very efficient. The president got a lot of face time. And arguably, even looking at people like Melania Trump's speech, who's not known for her public speaking, I think a lot of what she spoke to will have resonated with Americans, just a, a bit more kindness. And I, I feel strange saying that in the age of Trump. Usually when you talk about Team Trump, you're not really talking about kindness. But I just think a few of those speakers... Mm-hmm got to the heart a bit more of what's actually happening in America right now. So I'm not going to say it was a toss-up. I actually think the Democrats really turned it out with their speakers. But you can't write off the RNC. It was a it was a pretty spectacular show. Freddie, I thought what was particularly interesting was that, even though Kate says you can't write off the RNC, a lot of British coverage that I saw, at least, did kind of write off the RNC to a greater degree than the DNC. So do you think that the media is still underestimating Trump, as many did in 2016? I think so. I mean, uh, the only thing in favour of the DNC at the moment 
in terms of its its success as a convention uh, would be that it, it had much higher viewership than the Republicans on the first night anyway. And um, I, I think that's uh, that's that may be in its favour, but it may also be bad news because, as Kate says, the the image that they projected was quite negative. And um, Billie Eilish, the very, very popular singer, uh, looked so amazingly miserable as she endorsed Joe Biden and told the world to stop, you know, to stop Donald Trump at any costs. Uh, and if you sort of contrast her with a lot of the sort of wholesome kind of little bit crazy, but still rather, you know, lovable as long as you're not wrapped up in Trump hatred, um, people that the Republicans put on this week, you know, you do get a very different image. And, and, and I think I'm being objective in saying the Trump image came across better overall. And in fact, if you look at if you look at the first polls since the Democratic Convention, they normally even a failing political party will enjoy a dead cat bounce in the polls. Uh, the Democrats don't even seem to have done that. They seem to have gone down um, since their convention, which is really, really troubling for them, or at least it should be. And Freddie, one thing that's you know seems to have changed some minds in the recent weeks is the protests that have been happening in Wisconsin in reaction to um, another black man who's been shot by police. How have those protests changed the electoral dynamics, do you think? Well, there's a really interesting uh, survey from a company called Civics um, that polls quite extensively across uh, all states. And they looked at how popular, or it was an approve or disapprove, uh, approve or oppose Black Lives Matter question. And they looked at it across all different ethnic groups. And among white voters, particularly non-college educated white voters in swing states, which is the key demographic that broke for Trump late in 2016, there was a huge spike in support for Black Lives Matter. Uh, when George Floyd was was killed. So people who want to say that they're racist, they're they're not. They they supported Black Lives Matter in the weeks after the Floyd death. But then that support seems to have sort of fallen away. And now opposition has grown and is actually greater. There's a majority of people, uh, non-college educated white people in these swing states that oppose Black Lives Matter now. Uh, And I think that's because these riots have carried on, they haven't gone away, they've got worse, and the Democratic Party does not seem to be willing to outright denounce violence, carnage and looting. Biden did it yesterday, but it was within the context of saying that, you know, systemic racism must be rooted out. So I think that there's a strong possibility that Black Lives Matter and the and the protests that it has caused and the riots that it's caused and the carnage that it's causing in America are giving Trump a great tool, a great advantage in this race. So Kate, could it cost the Democrats the election? It strikes me that if the Democrats lose the election, this could be part of the reason, but I would think it would have more to do with the fact that Joe Biden has been very vague in his vision for America. He was really praised for the speech that he gave at the DNC, and I think it was his best so far in the campaign trail, no doubt. And um, it, it was strong in many ways, but still, if you're voting for Joe Biden this time round, you are voting against Donald Trump. 
a lot of people in America want to vote against Donald Trump, but there is always this question, especially in American politics, if you can really just be the opposition or if you need to present something new mm. and hopeful. Now, I would argue that Joe Biden is running against somebody who presents sometimes new things, but not necessarily hopeful things. Trump notoriously will run very negative, very gritty campaigns that don't offer a lot of optimism. So it's, you know, I'm, I can't make a prediction at this point. It's near impossible to say what's going to happen in roughly, I think it's nine weeks time. But I completely agree with Freddie that public attitude does seem to be shifting, not away from Black Lives Matter as that slogan and as that statement and that philosophy, but there is a dawning realization that those who would take advantage of this situation and those who just want to cause chaos and who want to cause destruction are continuing to do so. And I think that is frustrating and obviously quite frightening to the Americans who are experiencing it. And watching these, not really protesters, but those who are just taking part in vandalism, destroying businesses and cars and private property, many of which belong to the black community, is really rubbing people up the wrong way. Of course, the counterside to that is that this is happening on Trump's watch. And uh, as I believe Freddie's written about before, Trump trying to pivot himself against the mayors and governors of these towns and states uh, will be interesting in the coming weeks as to whether or not it's a battle of him versus them or him versus Joe Biden. And there's no way that this topic isn't going to come up in the debates, which will happen in the near future. And the difference and in, in the way that, that Trump and Biden tackle this issue and how that resonates with the American public will probably matter quite a bit. And Freddie, in your piece, you also mentioned China as an election issue. Now, Biden did try to be a bit more hard on China, but that seems to have sort of fallen by the wayside recently. Do you think he needs to be harder on China in order to win? I think he probably does. Uh, I mean, the evidence suggests that um, Americans consider China the, the threat of China and the threat of being eclipsed by China as, as a major concern. And the Biden campaign just a few weeks ago seemed to understand that. Uh, they ran um, attack ads against Trump for sort of rolling over for China as the coronavirus spread around the world. But then being Democrats, they sort of suddenly got you know politically correct about it and anxious and decided perhaps that was a sinophobic uh, point of view and that that you know they were they were being more Trump than Trump and that sort of thing and also it just doesn't really sit well with their worldview to to sort of pose as standing up against China so it sort of slipped away a bit from their rhetoric which of course gives Trump gives back to Trump one of his big selling points in 2016 and one of one of his big successful points as a politician that he is the man who is willing to stand up against China which is taking over America as as the world's great power. And Kate, finally, I'm sorry to put you in the spot again, but last time we spoke on the podcast, you said that you were thinking about voting for Joe Biden, but it depended on his VP pick. Now, I think from conversations that we've had off air that Kamala Harris is probably one of the worst picks he could have done for your vote. Do you think that you're still going to be voting for him come November? Reluctantly, yes, Cindy. That is still the plan, although he's made it as difficult as possible. And his pick of Harris makes a lot of sense for uniting the Democratic Party because 
interestingly enough, if you speak to those on the progressive left, they say, oh, we're thrilled that he's picked her. She's a real progressive. And if you speak to those on the moderate left, they go, oh, we're thrilled that he's picked her. She's really quite sensible. So he's managed to unite his own party with her. And she certainly brings a lot of energy. She's a fantastic public speaker. You can see all the the ticks in her favor. But unfortunately for for us freedom-maximizing people, her, her record as attorney general in California really counts against her. At this point, for me, the, the question is, what can get America back on track to its free market, optimistic view of the world? Uh, and I worry that a Republican Party dominated by so much protectionism and, frankly, by so much ugly rhetoric is preventing us um, from having that real debate that's needed in America, especially as the Democrats move to the left. So reluctantly, yes, Cindy. I mean, check in soon. I'm having a difficult <laughs> time over here, but reluctantly... That's where we're at. I'm very amused to hear Kate go through Kamala Harris's plus points through gritted teeth. <laughs> uh, you did quite a good job of summing it up. But I would add that, again, we've seen no real bounce in the polls from Kamala so far because um, people don't seem to like her. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a flaw in a person who's trying to win an election. Freddie and Kate, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Now, the Conservative Party has been licking its wounds over a pretty difficult fortnight over exams, but James Forsyth takes a look at the next backbench round, and it's over housing reform. James joins me now together with Liam Halligan, economist, journalist and author of Home Truths. So, Lim, to catch listeners up, can you tell us what the government is proposing in its new housing reforms? Well, during the depths of summer, unusually, really, the government brought out an extremely important white paper, provisional proposals to revamp our planning system. And of course, that's very, very sensitive because a lot of residents don't want more development. There's a lot of NIMBYs out there. My own view is that while there were some bold measures in it, it doesn't actually address the real problem. Yes, our planning system is very cumbersome. Yes, it's a huge barrier to small businesses because it's so difficult to navigate. And it's a barrier to all house builders because it's so random uh, and there are so many unexpected outcomes. But the fact is there are around a million planning permissions outstanding now. So there are permissions for houses to be built that haven't been built, that the big developers have been sitting on. And what I've been arguing in and around Westminster for quite a few years now and in my recent book, Home Truths, is that the real problem isn't the number of planning permissions out there, though it is a problem. The real problem is access to those planning permissions and the market for land and the massively over-concentrated house building industry that's contriving scarcity, keeping supply restricted to keep housing prices high and for many people unaffordable. So isn't part of the problem that people aren't building on the green belts in the way that the government is suggesting? The Greenbelt is an issue. The Greenbelt is not being concreted over, whatever the various lobby groups tell you. The Greenbelt now covers 13% of the landmass of England. The Greenbelt is now over 150% bigger by area than it was in 1979. And much of the Greenbelt, as many people will attest, is urban scrub of no aesthetic value whatsoever. There are outstanding areas of natural beauty. There are areas of outstanding natural beauty in the UK. And there are some parts of the Greenbelt which it really would be you know, ridiculous to build on because they are 
beautiful and of real value for, for leisure and well-being of residents. But huge parts of the Greenbelt now, particularly around train stations, even around the stations that comprise Crossrail, can't be built on, and that's completely mad. So in the case of Crossrail, the state has spent upward of £20 billion on a new piece of rail infrastructure, and no one can build any houses near the stations. That's mad. And James, what are the Tory MPs, um, what do they have against this reform? So the most remarkable thing is that these reforms are, as Liam said, they're so pusillanimous on things like the Greenbelt. You know, there is no permission to build near stations. Instead, it's an attempt to shift England to a zonal system of planning. And essentially, that would be three zones. One would be Greenbelt and areas of outstanding natural beauty, which would be protected. Then there would be growth areas where development would be actively encouraged. And then there would be renewal areas where developments that were in accordance with the local plan would be granted permission in principle. The fundamental objection of Tory MPs is that this is going to mean more houses in Tory shires. Now, I think the government will tweak the algorithm used to decide housing need, but you can't get away from the fact that the bits of a country that are most unaffordable are the bits of a country where you need to build houses. You have to build houses where people want to live. Building houses in cities that have shrunk in recent decades doesn't work because those cities have shrunk because there are not the economic and social opportunities there that that people are seeking. And I think the problem for the government is the government has always known, this is since the election, you've asked people in number 10, what are you going to spend your political capital on? What's the purpose of this government? Planning is one of the things they have listed. The problem they've got is they have had to spend an awful lot of political capital during lockdown on defending things like the exams debacle or the various U-turns, all of that stuff. And that means that they now come to spend their post-election political capital on planning reform, and it is far less certain that they will get their way because Tory MPs have seen the number of U-turns and think, well, if we apply enough pressure, the government will backtrack. The government cannot afford to backtrack on this because this is, by a country mile, its most significant supply-side reform. It cannot give up on this. It cannot give up on this because, for political reasons, but also for one economic reason and one long-term political reason. The economic reason is... The most significant supply side reform the government has. And it also sent a big message about what kind of economy Britain is going to be post-Brexit and post-Covid. And a liberalised planning system is something that would reassure investors. And then I think the long-term political point is the Tory party is the party of the property-owning democracy. If that falls back because property becomes more and more expensive because of the scarcity that Liam was talking about, then the Tory party won't win elections in future. I think there is already an issue about what the Tory party is doing in terms of generational fairness. Fixing the planning system and allowing more people to get on the property ladder is got to be part of an offer to young people. Otherwise, the Tory party becomes the party of, of an ageing population, and that is that is for, for obvious reasons unsustainable in the long term. As a millennial, I definitely agree with that, James. Liam, what about this algorithm that James just mentioned there? It's one that will be used to calculate where new homes are needed. After recent events, it doesn't seem like algorithms are inspiring much confidence. What do you make of the government using an algorithm at all? I think it's an attempt to say, oh, we're just following the science. It's not our fault, Gov. And Neil O'Brien, who's one of our brightest MPs, uh, has really demonstrated how the algorithm has come up with some perverse outcomes. Look, the planning system does need fixing because it is so cumbersome. We have a planning system that gives permissions as an exception to the rules rather than being the rules themselves. A move to zonal planning is a good idea, in my view, But that isn't going to fix everything because there are already lots and lots of planning permissions out there that aren't being used. 
what we need to do is change the structure of the house building industry by having antitrust measures, I'm afraid, because far too few very big house builders dominate the market and the small and medium-sized enterprises that used to build over half our houses are now building less than a third. Look, lockdown's changed a lot of things. There will be different patterns of property ownership. You know, I think a lot of people will be moving out of London into towns surrounding London and similarly in Manchester, Leeds, Bristol and our other big cities. So changes are afoot. But I think James is exactly right. Unless the Tories really grab hold of this problem, then they are going to really upset a lot of people of your age, frankly, Cindy, very, very important swing voters whose votes are up for grabs. Look, the reason Corbyn got so close to Downing Street in 2017 was because you had a lot of people in their 20s and frankly into their 30s and 40s who thought they'd be property owners, but they weren't. So they just wanted to throw everything up in the air. The last general election, I think, was different because it was the Brexit referendum. But this big issue will come back to bite the Tories. The problem is there's now a perception, and it's a perception that's grown during lockdown, that if they are going to really tackle this and take on the big house builders and, frankly, reform the market for land, which, again, are proposals I outline in my book, Home Truths, then they're going to have to take on the big developers and the big landowners. Do they want to run a capitalist society that provides opportunities or do they want to oversee a crony capitalist society? James, do you see the government taking on the big house builders? I think the system, the move to a zonal system, essentially would, because it would make planning much more predictable. One of the advantages that big house builders have, if you have an unpredictable planning system, if you are a big company that can afford lawyers, you're at a structural advantage. My view on... on uh, bold attempt to say the word after lunch, uh, my bold view on breaking up the oligopoly of the big house builders would be for the state to directly commission house building. I mean, I think that is we have got to the stage where the housing crisis is so acute that we need the government to start directly commissioning the building of homes. I mean, the government owns a huge amount of land in this country. I personally think the one that would actually help with the post-COVID finances, the government should start granting itself planning permission and then directly commissioning house builders and then selling the houses at a discount to key workers, young people, all this sort of stuff, and getting more people onto the property ladder. Because property ownership is is an intrinsically good thing. I think the vigorous and virtues it encourages make society a better place. If we can encourage more home ownership, I think we'll become a more harmonious and happier society. James, on a political level, do you think there's a slight awkwardness with the Ministry of Housing doing anything too radical at the moment, given what's happened recently with Robert Jenrick? I think political storms like this come and go. And I actually think that political storms like this demonstrate the problem of our planning system. If you want to know what is wrong with a planning system, and the fact that people feel the need to buy tables at Tory party fundraising dinners to get planning permission suggests that something is fundamentally flawed about the whole approach. Again, you know, if you want to reduce the appearances of impropriety and, and the opportunities for corruption and all that stuff, have a clear, transparent and predictable system. And, and this white paper moves you in that direction and so it's therefore a, a good thing. Liam, there's plenty more to talk about, but we're running out of time. So just briefly while you're here, in the magazine this week, there's also a feature by production editor Emma Byrne, who writes about her housing nightmare. She bought a flat on a government-backed affordable housing scheme, only to find that her block was clad in Grenfell cladding. And now, because of further government regulations, she can't sell or remortgage her, her property and may even have to pay for the tens of thousands of pounds to reclad it herself. Potentially three million people trapped in their properties in similar situations. Do you think the government is aware of the scale of the problem? 
It would seem not. And let me just link my answer to that question to James's last answer. Look, it is not a socialist thing for the state to be a little bit more involved in the delivery of land for building. This happens in America. This happens in Australia. This happens in Singapore. It's completely normal practice to have a system where the state takes its own land, gives itself planning permission, commissions houses sometimes, but then sells the land on at a profit for the state. And that profit then builds the infrastructure that makes new homes into a place. I've argued strongly for a repeal of the 1961 Land Compensation Act, which means that then planning uplift, when a landowner gets planning permission, the value can go up three, four hundredfold, which shows the demand for housing that's pent up. That should be shared with the local authority, so the local authority can then build infrastructure. And that gets all the local NIMBYs, or a lot of them, on the side because they're going to get the new school, the new hospital, the new bypass, the, a council tax reprieve for a year in return for allowing the development from, to go through. These government plans just blow the local authorities away and it's Whitehall diktat. You don't make things happen by forcing people in this country. You have to convince them and the money from planning uplift can help convince them. Now, on Emma's excellent piece, I think she's exactly right. She's put her finger on a big problem. Grenfell happened in June 2017, and the last numbers that I've seen show that there are still 328 residential tower blocks in this country with the same cladding that the government has said since, since said is illegal. So tens of thousands of people are living in apartments that are either social housing or they've been bought by private investors and private residents who are sleeping in death traps. Frankly, it's an alarm, alarmist language, but that's what the government is saying. They're sleeping in tower blocks where the cladding is unsafe. So the government does need to get hold of this problem. Maybe they think they can forget it if they're just dealing with social tenants who often have nowhere else to go. But if they're dealing with private tenants who literally can't move on with their lives, then the political imperative to address this issue can only rise. James and Liam, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Last. Our features editor, Will Moore, writes about a rather unusual new source of enjoyment in this week's issue. He joins me now to talk about it, together with Sarah Yerrell, author of The Diary of an Angry Commuter. So, Will, tell us about it. I realised I like my commute, which I do every day for two and a half hours of my day in total uh, on the train from Sussex to London. And it is, I admit, probably a bit of a weird thing to enjoy, but I really do, and, and I do because I think it's just a precious bit of time, and it's time that's sort of given to you. It's, it's scheduled for you to have this time by yourself to use how, how you want to use. And I think, especially, I have two small children at home, and you know the responsibilities of work when I'm in the office, so the responsibilities of fatherhood on one end, the responsibilities of work on the other, and this is a sort of airlock between those two different worlds. That's how I see my commute, and I, I just... I love having that time to just read and to have that time given to me. Sarah, you hated your commute so much that you even wrote a book about it. Can you imagine anyone enjoying commutes? <laughs> it does sound a very bizarre concept to me, but uh, I, I can understand the points, definitely. I mean, I used to try and sleep on mine. I used to listen to music or a couple of podcasts and uh, just try and use that time to relax, really, which wasn't always that easy, as you probably gathered if you read my book. 
Yeah, and can you tell us about your book? What made you want to write a book about commuting? <laughs> well, for me, I'd commuted for 17 years. Seven of those years was between Northampton and London Euston, and the remaining 10 was between uh, my current hometown of Market Harborough and London St Pancras. So it, it was about uh, an hour, hour and 20 minute journey each way. It was obscenely expensive, which was something that just used to get my anger levels up to stratospheric levels, I think. I absolutely will, will, will agree with you there. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I love every aspect of my commute. <laughs> the big one is the expense, which oh. of course only gets worse as well. So I certainly won't disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, mine had got up to just under £8,000 a year when I decided to actually call it a day and I, I sort of went freelance. But the book for me was, I used to write Facebook posts quite a lot and all my friends and, and family used to say, you really need to turn these into a book because they used to find them quite amusing. So I'd always observe people and I'd be astounded at how people used to behave and think you weren't actually being observed by anybody they think they could just get away with just ridiculous and quite frankly horrible behavior so for me it was oh god do do you really want to know well yeah yeah um... we absolutely want to know (laughs) (laughs) well i think one of the worst ones was the guy that was flossing his teeth that was really quite revolting real flicking as well i mean it wasn't just a, a no oh absolutely it wasn't just a subtle sort of um you know make sure nobody's watching and quickly give it a quick floss no it was proper flicking and he'd then drop the floss on the floor and and get another piece and and carry on so that went on for about 10 minutes the 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 nail clipping that was another one that was really quite vile oh i could go on honestly i mean i've I've seen so many things this is why now is the time to commute because the trains are so empty i mean i've never seen them so empty um, it's like a dream. <laughs> it is a dream. I'm just absolutely loving it. You know, you can stretch your legs out under the table. I can <sighs> loll all over the armrest. My belongings just go sprawling all over the table because I don't have to worry about someone <laughs> else's space. I'm really taking advantage of it because it's not going to go on forever. You know, eventually people will, pre- well, one assumes, depending what happens with this pandemic, but eventually people will come back to the trains. So for now, I think just having all this space in what would normally be rush hour, I think it's amazing. <laughs> and well, it's not just that the train isn't full of people. It's also not full of your toddlers. So how much <laughs> of your commute is because you're getting time away from the two kids? The expression I use in the article is that it's like an airlock uh, between these two worlds. It's like a decompression time. And I think that is the way to to view it. I also say in the piece, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky because I love my job and I love my family. And I think you wouldn't be able to stand your commute, you know, you'd, if you dreaded ending up at either end of it. I think that is really important. But having two kids, a toddler and a a baby and and so on, it does mean that when I'm at home, my responsibilities are that of fatherhood. And it means that having the time just to read is actually a very rare thing when I'm at home. And I found when working from home for the height of lockdown, the amount of reading I was doing, it was just minimal. It was nothing at all, Mm. really. And I I know I was very envious of all my friends who were saying, oh, I'm working from home. I'm I'm reading so much more. I'm reading all these Childless friends, presumably. Uh, Yes, my my childless (laughs) friends saying all this. And it was the opposite for me. And and that's why I I value that commute time. And I would also say, actually, from my perspective on it, is that part of it's almost a mindset you have to decide upon. Because if you're going to have to do this time... You know, for me, it's two and a half hours total each day. For you, Sarah, you, you said it was an hour 20 each way, right? So it's similar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit more than me, in fact. But I, I almost think you kind of have to make the decision, I'm not going to resent this time or else 
Well, I think if you don't do that, it's going to get to you in, in quite a big way. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, you've managed to turn it into, into, into a great creative thing, which is, which is marvellous. You know, you say the, the time, you know, you have to factor that in. And as you say, you know, you do, if, if you're going to commute, you have to accept that's part of your life. But unfortunately, when, which happened frequently with me, when, you know, you thought you'd be, say, an hour and 10 minutes journey would turn into three hours and 10 minutes or four hours and 10 minutes because of some crazy delay that's when it starts getting really yes. annoying. I agreed with you about the expense. I, or I agree with you about delays too. And, and that really does start to get me angry precisely because, as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the things I like about a commute is the scheduling of it. I like the fact that, this is a, that I know when this time is going to be. I know basically how long it's going to be there for. So a sort of change to that does really rile me up. But I'm, I'm a weirdo who I quite like, I suppose, regimented emotion. I quite like being given a time and a circumstance to set my mind or my emotions to something. So I love funerals for that reason. It's like an hour that you're given to be sad. Okay, this, um, is, all, this is a completely different podcast. Yeah. We need to have a separate discussion yeah, about sorry, this. Sorry, I'm getting off track. The point, the point, the point is, it's like it's like it's like a set amount of time to be given to read or given to your own thoughts, and that is what I love. So when so when that set amount of time becomes much longer than you factored in because of because of delays and so on. That is frustrating, definitely. Sarah, finally, there is something to be said about bookending your day, isn't there? I mean, working from home, lots of people found like Will, that they just their day just merged into another. Either, you know, you woke up, you went to work in your living room, you went to bed, you had dinner. You know, it was all the same. There was no bookending at all. It can be like that, but um, I think you have to be a certain type of person to be able to sort of sort your life out in terms of working from home. So... I come to my desk for a set amount of time and then once I've left it, that's it. I'm very lucky in that way that I can shut off and, you know, I still check email ridiculously late into the night, but don't we all? But yeah, I try and set a certain amount of time aside for work and then try and have a life outside of that as well. And it's not always easy, but if, if you try and have that aim, it does, it does work quite well. I think you've just got better self-discipline than me. When I'm at home, when I was working from home, I found it really hard to go out of work mode and into family mode and vice versa. They were all sort of merging in on each other. And the commute does that for me. It gives me that transition period. So when I get home from my commute, I am in family mode now. I'm no longer in work mode. And I, I don't think I had the self-discipline when I was working from home to really be able to, to separate those two modes in my head so I guess the national rail is just made, just does that job for me <laughs> and well actually um given that more people are coming back to offices well not very fast but they are any reading list recommendations for fellow commuters um what am I reading at the moment I usually have two things on the go one non-fiction and one fiction the, the non-fiction I've just read uh Lord the Donuts's very very good biography of Ernest Bevan which I really recommend and on the much, much more lowbrow section of my reading list. I'm just reading Stephen King's Christine, which is about a, a car that murders people. So <laughs> I recommend both for their own reason. Will and Sarah, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. You can read all of the pieces discussed in the issue together with Andrew Mars' diary, a column by Suzanne Moore, and me, Cindy Yu, on China's virus strategy. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. 